Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Ben Neal. Uh, thank you for joining us. Glad to. Uh, ben is someone who has a lot of experience in the beef industry. He is a producer, both as a, a cattleman, as well as he, for some reason, didn't think he had enough to do with the, the cattle operation and a family with three young children. So he took on a custom meat and retail meat business. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but thank you for taking a little bit of your precious time to just talk with us about your experience as well as your perspective from um, the beef industry. I do. I thank you for, for asking and consider it a privilege and, and hope there's value. Sure, there will be. So you currently live in about as South Tennessee as you can live before you get to Alabama, as I recall. Is that correct? Pretty close. We, we live about 30 miles north, and then uh, we do business about 15 miles north of the Alabama line, straight south of Nashville, uh, just off of Interstate 65. Okay. So, you, and that's not terribly far from where you grew up? Uh, no, I, I actually where, uh, where we purchased the process and plan is probably less than a quarter mile from where I grew up, uh, where, where we live is about 20, 20 minutes, 20 miles from there now. So, oh, that far, okay. yeah, that really branched out. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, and it's not as if you didn't visit other parts of the country. So you, you went to, well, maybe we shouldn't jump too far ahead. So growing up. You got to do a lot of work, in, and in fact, that's part of how you got to where you are. The work that you did in your community gave you opportunities later. I, I think that that's correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So yeah, the, the town I grew up in actually has a population a little under 300 people. So growing up, um, that was at a time when uh, there was a large cattle company called Eastern Livestock that, that ran a lot of cattle in that area. That's where a lot of the stalker backgrounding business of, of cattle is done uh, through the grass grass portions of Middle Tennessee. And then tobacco was still raised. Um, at that time, we, we still had tobacco poundage. It was given to landowners. A landowner could sell some of that poundage to, to others. And I worked for some of the larger tobacco producers growing up. Uh, hauling hay, mostly square hay for a lot of that that went to Eastern Livestock on all the receiving cattle. And then tobacco is how I, I put myself through through college for undergraduate, so. I, I remember the allotment system when Nancy and I lived in um, Georgetown, outside of Georgetown, Kentucky. Yep. Um, the, the little piece of property we had came with a couple hundred pound allotment that it, it got divided up and went with the, the land yep. uh, like, some people would know in the West with water rights. It gave you the right to market, but of course I wasn't gonna grow any, so I ended up selling that year to somebody else. Um, that's a hard way to make 
tuition is yeah. is working in the tobacco field. I, I jokingly so. say I went to college two cents at a time. I, I was paid two cents per stick of tobacco, and on hay, I was paid two and a half to load and two and a half to unload. So, so that was about the fees of what I made. So, okay, a stick. Now let's tell people what that is. Yep. So on uh, whenever you you chop tobacco, you, you'll chop uh, depending on the size of the tobacco, anywhere between four to six or seven plants, and then spirit on top of one stick. Uh, we do a lot of what we did was burley, not dark fire that people are familiar with. So the burley uh, is a little rougher type type product, but uh, so it's non-smoked. But you, you'd actually take it and um, put it onto the sticks and then you let it dry in the field, pick it up the next day, take it to the barns and hang it. As I'm recall, I never did that. <laughs> um, but as I recall, that's basically you're taking it off the wagon and handing it up into the barn now who yep. gets to be at the top and who gets to be at the bottom of the barn in that process the the fastest guy gets to be at the top uh some some people think you don't want to that that's actually i used to try to to try to jump and get there most of the time there's one other guy that would normally beat but the, the higher up you are the less you have to handle so if you can get to the top you didn't have to touch every stick all the way up and you don't have as near as much of the debris falling down on you so it would be the race to the top rung is what you would always have as soon as you hit the barn everybody would try to climb as fast as possible so yes okay so and then you mentioned hay so you're mo picking up bales putting them onto the wagon and then when they get to wherever you're going to stack them Yep. So I, I grew up time that I say that transition time. You know, when I started, I started for most of the guys when I was about eleven or twelve. I was almost this height at eleven. I put on about a hundred pounds, but I was, I was pretty long and got to work fairly early. But um, with, with that, we did a lot of the walking beside the truck, and it became harder. Even so, the guys that I was on a team with, football and other sports, would actually we'd recruit each other to go to work, and. Um, we would still had had the crews, but my senior year started coming into the bale hands, which in this area, they had a bale hand in a wagon that would group eight to 10 bales at a time. And then you wouldn't need the guys on the ground. You would just need the guys that would stack. So then I was able to stay on and still do the stacking, but that cut a crew of about eight down to a crew of about two. Um, and then that became even harder and harder. Um, even while I was in college, I had some guys call me back when I was in college to come back and work. They just had trouble finding help, and they went over to Round Bell shortly after. So, uh, so okay. Now, in college, you studied animal science, as I recall. Um, yep. Was that yep. when uh, you animal started? Pre-vet pre undergrad degree, and then... Um, had a few, I worked a few years for different vets in the area. Um, I wanted to be strictly a bovine vet and uh, they pretty much advised me not to do that. They, they said there won't be much living by the time you, you have your, uh, the debt and what it's going to take to get out, start a clinic if you do that. And if not, uh, if you just have a, a truck, there was a couple that just ran trucks and, to, and boxes in the back of those trucks that, that I helped. Um, and they basically just said, you know, get a get an undergraduate degree or go into to some sort of the business side of it. And I did a business minor after that. I was on a livestock judging team, started working for some seed stock places in the internship my last year there and met them. And um, and then went that route, went into more of the seed stock operation management versus versus veterinarian. So what do you mean by seed stock? I work in the seed industry. Kind of <laughs> a lot of the registered breeding cattle. Um, so at that time, a limousine was a Deer Valley was a place in Fayetteville, Tennessee. They ran about twelve hundred between uh, at about eight hundred um, 
registered cattle, uh, up somewhere appendix, somewhere purebred, and then they had about 400 recip cows that, that we would put eggs in and transfer, use as surrogates. So embryo transfer for those. Yep. So my, my job there was natural calving and um, taking care of the, the donor cows, doing the helping line up the flushes. I wouldn't do the flush, but I would line up a lot of the, the hormones used and then uh, do a lot of the artificial insemination for those. Hmm. And then from there, you moved to Texas. Is that correct? Am I Louisiana. Uh, well, about sorry, 50 miles Louisiana. North of, uh, <laughs> yeah, not, not quite as far. I have two brothers in Texas, but I never have, never have hung my hat in Texas. But um, so, yeah, I was about 50 miles north of New Orleans, a uh, little town in between Folsom and Franklinton. There was uh, an operation, Angus operation there called Monarch. Uh, and and the owner of Monarch actually had a a company that he owned called Gene Star, and Gene Star was one of the uh, initial front runners in what we know now as some of the Pfizer 50K genetic testing. So that herd was used as a lot of um, when he was setting up some of the testing and DNA results of the the different alleles that that are there. We would do some of the testing on those herds. So can you explain that some more? Um, what exact 50K, what are you testing for? Why? What's the benefit? Yeah, there, there's a, a lot more there. So a lot of the data that comes in in cattle um, is on EPDs. And I always, if I, if I do a talk or trying to educate anybody, that first E is expected progeny difference. It, it doesn't mean it's exactly going to be progeny difference. And, and you're trying to find out, you know, there's a lot of the environment plus genetics equals phenotype, you know, the G plus E uh, equals P if you go into the old genetics books. But there's a lot of factors that play into it. And like any business, you're trying to limit the number of variables so that you have more control. And, and that's really what you're doing with genetic testing is you're trying to limit the number of variables that are in some of those EPDs, find out faster if you can, rather than... Um, taking numbers. As an example, if you take a seed stock bull, the way that they're tested with their EPDs is to get back data on their calves. Well, if you consider the data, uh, gestation time, you know, nine and a half, ten and a half months, depending on what type of bull it is, and then you're going to get that data turned in. So you get birth weight, but before you get any carcass data or anything on that, you're another at least 18 months away. So you're, you're two and a half years away before you know whether you have a quality bull. And, and so you have those expected progeny differences that can help and determine that that's going to be likely, but you can use some of the genetic testing that's come on to try to find out, is it going to be more likely that he's going to have more marbling? Is it less likely he's got more ribeye to make those determinations faster than having to wait on a three-year data accumulation? So what are some of, uh, I try to explain to people what some of these listings are like when people select sires uh, or they're going to um, sales to buy live animals. Um, what are some of the things that the industry, the traits that the industry has worked out these EPDs for? Um, the, the, the main one that you'll, you'll see, um, marbling's been a trend for a long time, it has been a major focus. Um, you're looking now to almost 70 to 80 percent of the nation's cow herd can grade choice, uh, which is a big change from where it was 10 or 15 years ago. Um, you know, it's like anything, though, in my opinion, I get a little bit off on on some of these conversations is that you, you can't single trait select. 
Um, we, we have gone down that road quite a bit with cattle uh, on marbling. Marbling is one of the last fats that's going to be deposited. So a way to make that happen and get that good EPD number, that EPD number is tested at yearling age. Uh, so they'll be scanned for that at that time. So the way to get more marbling is to have an early maturing animal. Well, if you have an earlier maturing animal, you have a smaller animal, which actually means less pounds of product for a man to be able to sell uh, to an end market where he's paid on pounds if you're going through a feedlot type setting. Um, so you've got some of those things you have to balance between those premium programs and what you can actually do, uh, what, what's most financially beneficial. And that is one of the things that led us into marketing some of our own beef um, to, to have a little bit more control of, of those things that we've been trying to align and make sure that we had the market in place. If the choice select spread, which is, I don't know how much you want me to get into that, but on the grid Please. premiums uh, can, can be pretty small in the springtime. You're feeding a lot of cattle across the winter, so a lot of them are going to be choice. So by supply, you have a lot of supply. Um, a lot of that can be affected by what plant you're processing in that day. So a, a Midwestern plant is going to have a lot more choice cattle in general than a Texas plant. So a Texas plant, you got yield type cattle or heavier muscled cattle will do better. A Midwestern plant will do better off of, of quality grade cattle. So you have to look into those, those marketing times. And even those two things, I really don't have any effect over how many cattle were fed in the entire Midwest during the winter. But I had 18 months of planning and preparation and my budget has to fit that. So trying to set those things up is something that you've got to watch your marketing times, your calving times a year to 18 months in advance, trying to set that up to, to capitalize on that market and maintain some of that control. And a big part of that timing is dictated by your environment. So you're going to make a decision about what, how your cattle reproductive cycle best fits your forage and environmental cycle. And then you've got to do the best you can with that in terms of marketing. Yep. And, and there, there's a fine line and there's different views. And, and that's where it can get confusing to anybody on the outside looking in for, for things that you do. And you've got to decide on your operation what works. I calve earlier than a lot of people uh, in Tennessee calf. So a, a lot of people do a spring calf, you know, March, April, May. That's when we have grass green up. I calve January, February. It's a very hard time, a lot of mud, a lot colder. Um, but the reason I do that is because when that calf, when the cow has a peak lactation around 100 days, she'll be coming off of her lactation cycle at about three months in. So whenever that her lactation is dropping off, that calf is now coming on to the freshest, best grass that I have. So he can come off of mother's milk on the highest protein that I've got to develop the calf. So it's more work for me and, and it can increase, you know, even the death loss, which is something you try to prevent. But it, it's overall, it, it's what works for us uh, to, to be able to get that product to market. And we actually can, if we're going into the feedlot setting with those cattle, we can get them generally... Um, processed by June of the next year. And so when you go into the summer, you have a big dip again in, in the June market. Um, so by, by going in January, February timeframe and trying to keep a 60 to 70 day calving window, I can normally have them processed and be about 1,350 pounds by about May of the following year. And so if not, I'm feeding those cattle into the summer and they're not near as efficient in the summer, summer heat, no matter where they are. So, so by calving window, you mean 
that all your calves are going to be born within two months at the most. Yeah, for first calf to last calf. We, we try to, we preg check everything um, in, in that time. We leave the bull out for that number of days. Uh, I go by holidays. I normally turn, uh, start calving around Martin Luther King Day, and, and then I'm going to have them out, you know, be done by tax day. That gives me a mindset of where I'm going to be at on those those times just to kind of mm -hmm. keep that so then that's how i turn the bulls out to match those days to know when and where i'm at in the in the cycle so so that's basically two heats if she doesn't get if the mama cow doesn't get bred in two cycles then yeah. you consider her open for whatever reason and then sell her or I do, yeah. I, I roll. Um, I'll roll from fall to spring, or from spring to fall one time. Meaning, I, I do run two calving cycles. So um, I don't do a lot of supplementation with with heifers. Uh, any heifers that I keep, we we do a little different here. Everybody's different on our feeding program. Um, haylage is about the only supplementation that my cows get. I use um, dry hay for the most part. A lot of it's purchased, so it's lower quality uh, than what than what I would raise, but my math works to where on leased ground, I'm better off running cows and buying hay than I am trying to raise hay on, on leased, leased ground and trying to get it up to quality of, of hay production. Um, so then I do purchase hay during that calving time. So I start purchasing hay at the beginning of the year. That, that's all hay leads a local, uh, local producer puts that up and he brings me a load as I need it during, during calving season. So that bumps the protein for the cows. So they've got more protein coming in and the protein for a cow, even though she's not developing muscle, actually is just used to help her break down lower quality protein. It increases energy in the diet is the reason you feed the, the protein to a cow. But it'll it'll give an, an average protein between about a 13 to 15% for those cows when I feed a mixed ration of dry hay and, and hay leach to them. So that'll keep milk production up, keeps the fat on them well enough that they, they come through the winter okay to, to breed back in, in, that, in that time frame. Um, you mentioned something about scanning for ribeye area and, and marbling. What kind of scan is that, that you're talking about? Yeah, it's a, it's actually just a, it's, it's a carcass probe, very similar to what they use for a repro probe for, for cattle, except it's about 12 to 14 inches across, depending on which, which company that they use. Um, most commercial producers don't use those. A lot of that is done for the, the seed stock to try to test the, to get those yearling EPDs of, of the marbling and ribeye area. So they can do the surface area of the ribeye to know uh, how much muscle or red meat yield that's gonna be there out of the, the stakes. And then the same for the marbling. We actually, because of my background, I do have the connections and the guys in the area. So I actually do scan any cattle that I'm gonna put through our meat line uh, to make sure that they are quality um, for, for what's gonna go through. So if I, we run, you know, even with what I process at the, at the feedlots, um, we still average somewhere around 86 to 88% choice, depending on the year of what we send. Um, I don't target a lot of prime. I know that's something that a lot of people do. Um, my, some cattle of mine will, will, will go prime, but for a large part, uh, they're overfed if mine are prime. They, they can do a good choice, uh, but I, I have a lot more money tied up in trying to hit a prime market, and I don't really have a premium for a prime product more than a locally dry-aged choice-type product.
Okay. And this is ultrasound, right? That is the technology. Yes. Yep. Yep. Ultrasound technology. So they, there's some different variations on that. Some guys do uh, what they call a shoot side uh, with that, where they'll look and make the judgment right there at that shoot side. Uh, the others are go through what's called a cup lab, um, which is a, a certified ultrasound program to where a third party is actually looking at the images that the person on site takes to make sure that there's validity there. Not saying that a shoot side person can't, but it might be influenced to make a call uh, one way or the other if if they're standing there by the man that's paying them, whereas a cup lab is, is um, a, a third party usage. Mm -hmm. Okay, so your forage base in that part of the country, you're certainly lower part of the transition zone from cool season primarily to warm season. Um, what sorts of forage resources are you re, uh, relying on? Yeah, and, and that's the thing, too, with saying, you know, that we're able to do, a, when I say I do a spring and fall, we, we're in a temperate zone. I'm able to do a spring and fall because of our weather and forages. You know, I, I don't think I would try that in, in other areas of the country with, with what they have uh, to deal with by the extremes in, in the weather. You know, we... We're going to have a few, you know, we have some snow outside right now. That'll be about the third or fourth time I see it this year. And it's only about two inches deep. You know, it's just not going to be be that bad. Our, our main issues are mud uh, that, that we deal with. 40 degrees and rain is our winter um, in between 40 and 50. So right where I'm at, a lot of fescue. Um, so you've got for the cool season grasses. So you'll have a fescue clover mix or some timothy and some things like that. Um, that you put in and then summertime, um, you know, if, if you sprigged it or raised it, a lot of it, people will have a Bermuda grass or a, a grass, a, a native Bermuda. Um, I have good luck out of using just what's, I call it, it's a giant crab. It's the old crab grass that's actually available. Um, and try to manage with as little planting as I can. Um, I, I do plant a, a cereal rye or use some rye grains on occasion. Um, to to bring in some winter grazing for the cows. So uh, as I stated earlier, I use haylage, but I also will for some pens and some of those heifers. I'll use the uh, I'll plant in the the rye. It's a five way blend. It's a grazing five way blend of rye grass, wheats, and those things too. Um, to use. And then the same guy that I contract with on Haleach, he comes and cuts what I can't graze out at the end of the spring. So then we kind of work through that. And then that becomes my Haleach because you can buy in stalker cattle um, and graze them on that for a pretty quick turn to, to, to harvest the forage. Uh, but it works pretty well for me. You're pretty close to dollar for dollar to be able to give him that portion of, of what's on our place. He sells it previous and then he, he brings me some more Haley's later in a year. So. So stalkers, that's something that I'm not sure everyone would understand what stalker cattle are. Yeah, so here, um, stalker and backgrounder is, is almost used synonymous. Um, we're mostly known for cow-calf, but in cow-calf, a lot of people don't have the facilities, especially, I call them a W-2 farmer here. Uh, somebody has a side job or a small acreage place. They don't have enough facilities or acreage to... Um, have multiple pens to, to be able to keep their heifers, raise a set of calves that are weaned, have their cows. And, and so a lot of people will sell a, a lighter weight calf. So it'll come off the cow somewhere between four and 500 pounds. And they'll, they'll market those uh, either off farm or at a, a sale barn generally. 
So then those cattle are, are purchased and backgrounded, or they can be weaned on the guy's place, the owner's place, and then backgrounded for 45, 60 days, get them bunk broke, meaning that they can eat feed and then sold. So that window there up until about that 600 pounds is, is backgrounded, or sometimes people use that synonymous with they get them and straighten them out, meaning to get the health together on them and then get them on grass is, is really stalkering. But, um, but then they'll keep those cattle up until about 800 pounds, 750 to 800 pounds. And then those cattle are then ready to go to a feedlot or a finish type situation. So you really have a three-step ration there in that process that they're, they're on. Um, and that's what Tennessee's good at is, is temperate zone, you know, fairly easy gain. I, a lot of people, I joke and say a lot of people badmouth fescue in, in the country. My thing is, is fescue is almost always here. Even in a drought, we still have some fescue. So it, it, it's something that you, do we get lower gains on it? Yes. Is it something that has to be managed? Yes. Is there some issues with it? Yes. But I can feed them some fescue and they'll still stay alive versus something on a complete drought where I'm bringing hay in from three states away. Mm. So it, it's something to deal with and, and limit some even with what we do with the way that we graze it, we, we can kill out if we got anything that's really bad into fight infected, but we really don't have it by, by just limit grazing and doing what we're doing. So, so, um, couple thoughts and they've all jumped out of my head. Um, the, so the stalker business, what you pay for the light animal is more than what you're going to get for the heavier animal. Do I have that right? And you're trying by, to buy the, by the pound, by yes. the pound. Yes, the yes, pound. yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, right. Hopefully yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's, how, that's how you hope it's going to be anyway. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and, and that really is, I mean, right now, honestly, in, in, in the market in our area, stockers are a better business than cow calf. Um, uh, and the reason I say that is, is margin. So as the market has changed in the cattle business, just like everything else, it's sped up. The volatility has increased. Uh, what used to take a year to be a nickel to a dime change can happen in two weeks, three weeks. And a nickel and a dime change on a 700-pound animal is, you know, 35 to $70. And some years that's your profit. And, and that, again, you didn't do anything different between the guy that sold March 1st versus March 30th. Um, but the market can change that fast. So when you're a cow-calf man, you have all your money tied up 18 months prior to calving, all of those things, and then you take that calf to market, and that's what you get if, if you're selling at sale barn or selling into that environment. The stalker man has a, a quicker turn. So if he turns that calf out and he's got, you know, a pound and three-quarters to two pounds of gain on easy grass, uh, if he's not even, even feeding, he's going to put 200 pounds on so three months, he's going to sell the calf again. So he's not going to be stuck for as long in a, in a, in a downward trend. And if it has gone down or gone up, he's going to buy into the same market. So if he sells a low calf, he's going to buy a low calf. And eventually he'll cycle out of that where a man who purchased cattle, you know, for our current situation in 2014, they're worth over about one and a half or two and a half times what they are now. You know, they're worth about a thousand dollars. Now they were 2,500 in 2014 that same cow is still walking around that some of those people purchased and, and, and it's now, you know, not only depreciated, but it, it, it's now worth, uh, worth a third of what it was. Mm. So, uh, that, that's where the risk comes in the, in the cattle side and makes it harder and harder on the cow side. 
it makes it harder for young people to to get into the business. You have a lot of capital to, to outlay between equipment, land, and then you've got a market that you just do not control. And, uh, and, and it makes it difficult for, for more young people to be interested in, in that much risk. Absolutely. So uh, I want to continue on your journey because the last thing was working for seed stock um, producer and, and doing the, the, the testing. Um, so at some point you went from Louisiana um, back to home state. Yeah. Um, and how did that work? Because one, one of the questions that I hear people, they want to know how to get into agriculture, right? And the, the, the joke is you were born into it, you marry into it other than that. Yeah. So um, could you tell us a little about your personal experience? Yeah. So, um, I'm first generation, really. My, my dad has a, a small farm, about 50 acres in uh, close to where I grew up. He, he's top, I think, was 16 cows is what he had. So my, my granddad was a chemical engineer. My dad's a mechanical engineer. My older brother's a mechanical engineer. And then I, I wound up being in, in agriculture and in the cattle business. Um, but what drew me to it, again, I, I said I started working young. The, the men that I worked with took an interest in me as a, as a young boy. And... and I worked, I got a lot of reward. You know, you look back over life, but I got a lot of personal satisfaction from those guys being proud of the job that I would do for them and, and, and the way that I worked. And so I was drawn to them and, and drawn to the work ethic that they had and, and how they they provided for their family in that. And um, those those by that and those close relationships had a lot of influence on my life and decisions I made. That's one of the reasons that I, I went into the pre-vet and was looking at the cattle side was because I spent even on some of my holidays I would spend with the guys I worked with, families versus my own, and and I was that close with them. Um, the man that I worked for in Louisiana is a guy named Vince Roberts. He's probably one of the best men that I've ever, ever worked for as far as not only cattle manager, but just a good human being. And he, he took time in uh, – really encouraging me in, in my job to go back and get some more education and an opportunity had came up uh, to where I would have been maxed out with really with what I could do. It was another manager's job for a large seed stock operation that was coming on. Um, a lot of the seed stock operations are just structured to be a seven year depreciation for somebody that did really well in another business. They, they get over into seed stock and they're in it for a few years to, uh, to, to put the money there and then they'll sell out. And then the man that manages that business uh, generally has to move to different places in different parts of the country. And, and he really encouraged me for my, my family life to consider what I was doing because he, he'd already been down that road. And he gave me some names of some other guys that were in that path. And, and it had some separated families and things because of it. And it, it really kind of changed what I was going to do. Um, so with that still being, uh, you know, young guy with not a lot of funds from the agriculture, I decided, uh, the state jobs looked like they paid for a lot of your education. So I ended up, I was able to get a job as an extension agent, uh, to, to start my graduate degree. Um, they had an online program at UT Martin where I'd got my undergraduate degree that they had just started called agri agricultural operations and management. Um, so if I recall it an ag op, that's, that's what it was, what I refer to it as still, but, um, 
that was some of the first online programs that would have been in 2006-ish, five-ish, six-ish, somewhere is when I, when I started that. Um, I'd been out about five years, which, believe it or not, is enough time that made even the computers and getting back to that kind of hard, <laughs> the memorization and things that, that it took. Um, but when I, when I started that program, the farm manager that I had, had known when I was an undergrad had a job come open for actually a, is a SARE grant, Southeast Regional Development Grant, uh, to run the sheep and goat unit. So I was hired back at the university full time. So I had started the uh, ag op degree, but was able to marry some of the classes together. I had to graduate out of the ag um, department before I could get over to the business department. But I was able to to marry some of the econ classes and get uh, an MBA on top of the ag op degree in about three years. So by being on campus, I was able to do both. Uh, so I worked there at the, at the university farm and, and got both degrees. Sheep and goats for a cattleman. Wow. Thank you for sharing that dark secret with us all. Yeah, yep. I know that's that's a profane thing for a lot of people uh, in, in the cattle business. But uh, yeah, it's in this area. It, it's growing. Um, up until uh, Lauren and I moved about two years ago, we actually run about a 70 to 80 head sheep flock. Uh, we had 40 acres that we owned uh, and had about a couple hundred acres that we leased. Uh, for small acreage, sheep and goats work better. You, you don't have near the the input capital requirements of them. Um, the market doesn't fluctuate. I jokingly say there's not a sheep and goat market uh, that there is, but it, it doesn't fluctuate as much as the cattle. You so see, you don't have the supply and demand numbers. And with the ethnic changes that we're having in the country, I can pound for pound and, and acre for acre. I made more money with the sheep and goats than I, than I would trying to put cattle out there. Um, I, I remember uh, Dr. Carl Hovland was someone who changed the trajectory of my career. Um, and I remember him saying, if, if, you know, he's saying, if I were a young man today, I would get into goats. One, because of the market that he saw developing, but two, because he just saw hundreds of acres of kudzu yep. that people could manage, if you will, and utilize. So, so there was that. And I also remember in Kentucky, they, they, they called um, sheep the mortgage payers. Um, I would actually, I mean, it, like I said, it, you go into this as deep as you want, but I would normally, uh, I would lamb a little bit different. So I, I calve all the way until December in the fall calving. I calve late September, October, mid-November. I take December off for calving, and then we start back in late January. I would lamb in around Christmas. So I would lamb mid, mid-December to, to January. So again, you had to have a place to get them out of the draft, but mm -hmm. you could sell on the Eastern, on the Orthodox market. So you could get that Easter lamb and, and, and make about twice as much off that lamb. You know, if you could get it up to 75 to 100 pounds um, in, in that market, you could get almost $2 a pound for, for that mm -hmm. lamb and mm -hmm. pretty quick turn on it. And then with doing that, we would lamb uh, out of season in the fall again. So every two years, I would get about three sets of, of lambs out of uh, I ran Katahdin. So I ran hair sheep. Uh, a little bit lower maintenance, but they do well down here in, in Tennessee. And plus, you don't have to shear them near as much. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's all converting grass into a saleable product. Yeah, so I would take that because we would have enough to um, – We, we I, I would keep the stocking density down enough to carry them through the winter on basically what we had. So very little hay, even in the wintertime. And then I would buy stockers in the springtime. 
So I would multi-species graze um, during most of the summer. And, and I would buy in a, a type of what's called a number two heifer, but a lower quality heifer over a couple of times and put a, a truckload together of those. And just by marketing, you can increase the premiums um, and then graze those on grass until about September and then pull them off, let the fescue come back for October, late September, October, and then run the sheep through the winter, October, November, turn the bucks back out and then they would be ready to, to breed and, and have lambs for me in January. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you've, gone through all of these experiences you've come back you're now and maybe if i jump ahead please fill in the gap but you're primarily operating on rented ground leased ground is that yeah and that comes with its um pluses and minuses um mm -hmm. with, with with leased ground all your rent is tax deductible. So if you're fortunate enough to make money, it does count as an expense where your mortgage payment on your interest is tax deductible. So yeah, I just heard can, somebody say you don't pay taxes you, on rented you, ground. You can, <laughs> that, that part helps if you, if you keep your rent down. Um, but even this year, as an example, it was a large track of ground. They sold it. What was owned by one person. I now have five landlord landlords. Uh, and I lost one, one track of that. Um, just because they they want to look at it rather than have cows on it they haven't managed the grass on it yet i think somebody i don't know whether it will be me will be back on it with something that's grazing the grass because it's just a lot of grass to maintain um when when you don't have anything grazing it so they they want it kind of look manicured right now but um you know so with that we had to reduce I had about a 60 day notice, even though there was a longer term in the contract and the way things are supposed to work and the way things really work sometimes are two different things. So um, we had hay purchased in, we had to move hay that I'd already moved in and paid somebody to move it in, then had to pay them to move it back out. And so you end up having some of those type of unforeseen uh, expenses and things that are outside of your control um, when you're when you're running lease ground. But at the same time, I have nowhere been near uh, that track was 2,400 acres and, and I was nowhere near capable to financially purchase 2,400 acres. So I was able to have access to it, to, to rent it and use it, try to take care of it for them. So there you, you, you have to be creative and willing to adapt, um, which again makes cow calf a little bit harder than having 25 or 35% of your business in stocker cattle. Um, because you have more flexibility of scheduling there to, to either increase or decrease your numbers. You can depop your stock or cattle and, and not have to depop a cow herd um, if, you, if you need to do that. So again, they're kind of two different dynamics of the same coin or two different sides of it. And I, I jokingly say being in the business, a stocker man buys all the problems from a mismanaged cow calf man. That's really what you're trying to do. You're trying to buy the thinner, the lower, the poor and upgrade them. Um, so it's a different mindset versus as a cow calf, which I say I'm more that way. If I have a problem, I feel like I didn't do something right 90 days before. Whereas a stocker person sometimes intends to buy something that is mismanaged in order to, to upgrade it. So they buy it at a lower price. So you got to have that mentality of, of both sides. What are you buying? I say, I buy something. I raise one animal and I buy something that looks completely different um, because I don't necessarily want it to match. I want it to be a, an upgrade or what I can do with it. <clears throat> so what, what was the thing that, encouraged you to buy um, a meat plant 
and and begin doing custom butcher work and then the next stage is the retail business or if it was the other way around um let describe yeah, so that part of after graduate school i actually became i'll back up for a second i was an exec for a nonprofit for a few years that uh took took a spot in between our department of agriculture and the cow calf producer um so it looked like mandatory animal identification was was going to happen um after the bse uh cows that were found in, in early 2000s so in order to be proactive there were some areas in in the southeast because we are a little bit different in the way that we market a lot smaller producers um so the the way to kind of get organized is more more organizations sometimes that's counterintuitive but we've got more to 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 adapt to certain certain instances and then we try to combine them so so there was what was formed what was called the southeastern livestock network and then tennessee formed the tennessee livestock network so we were a subsidiary to that that larger group um we worked with what was called PVPs or process verified programs to verify the data that we were getting on location and age of those animals. And then that was all housed internally or I housed it for those producers. Uh, when we would market the cattle, I would use an EID tag, um, which is very similar to the RFID technology that's used on clothes. If people walk through those panels and set the alarms off, they make a cow tag that's very, very similar to that. We can use that technology. It only holds a number, doesn't hold the producer's address, name, anything else, just a number. And, and we can ping that tag and have it into a spreadsheet or another system. And then it would marry up all the data that, that was given to that tag. Um, so then those cattle would then be available at that time for the Japanese export market. So it, it was uh, good and lucrative for uh, uh, a good probably three or four years. And then politicians being what sometimes it seems like they are, they, they negotiated away the premium uh, in order to open the market. Um, so more people could get to it, but then less of that premium was actually makes its way back down the cow-calf man at, at that point. Um, that being said, I had set up a, a pretty good network of relationships and friends through that time to... Uh, I knew where good cattle were. We would follow them all the way through to grid performance. Uh, we we knew a lot about them. We knew the cows. We knew the cow herd. We knew the pedigrees, all of the information. So going back to the beginning of our conversation, I could take a lot of the variables out of the cattle and, and know how they were going to perform for the feedlots. And, uh, or uh, if the producer wanted to retain ownership, we would we would negotiate that or help them negotiate it if they were they were new to it. So we started marketing the cattle out, out west. Uh, as the premium became less lucrative, it was harder to get the data back. So a lot of what we did was work with different feed companies or breeding companies to get them information um, on different bulls, different feed programs, mineral supplementations that they were using. Um, and then we would trace that all the way through the carcass, uh, the kill side at, at plants. So Part of my job became flying out of Nashville. I would fly out uh, just different places. Uh, most of the time out to, out to Kansas is where I would end up, um, go into some of the, the plants at Dodge and some of those, and we would get back the data uh, if the plant wasn't going to run them past a panel reader as my job to go get the, the, the data being carcass weight size, um, marbling scores, et cetera. 
and to, to, to complete the research projects. So getting to see it from that side, I've jokingly told people, you know, that ask me why I'm doing it here now is that, um, you know, most of my career had been spent getting animals up to the rail. Now, I guess the second half is going to be work trying to break them back down or get them off and make them small again. So that, um, the, the plan I purchased, we, we purchased cattle um, in 2011 for the first time as the cows that I, I owned uh, when the Texas drought was on because of, again, where I was at, I, I was able to go down and, and purchase cattle cheaply uh, then uh, because of the drought that was going on with some of the depop. So brought those cattle up, immediately started selling freezer beef, doing ultrasound on them, doing a lot of what I had done over the last five or six years. Um, had been taking those to a different in inspected plant, uh, federally inspected plant is what you have to have for resale. And anytime I was selling halves and holes, I would sell to the two, two brothers that I purchased what, what we currently run from. They, uh, retired in 16. They were 68, 69 years old. One of the gentlemen has Parkinson's. The other one's had a bad knee. They had, uh, their wives were in the business and their wives quit coming in January. They still, the two brothers were still coming to work, but they, their wives quit and said they were retiring in late January. They realized they couldn't find the help and uh, they, they had to call and cancel quite a few appointments in that area. So I began talking to them in February about the plant. Um, didn't really have any, any background in it. It's been a stiff learning curve. Uh, but was able to to get it uh, in the fall of that year, had to repurchase a lot of the equipment, get a lot of the permitting and things done. So was able to reopen in, in the beginning of 2017. Hmm. So you said grid, what, what's what's that? Uh, on, the, on the grid marketing, is that what you're referring to? Um, <laughs> so whenever you have, you, it's basically, a, it, it looks like a grid, but you've got yield grades on one side and quality grades on the top. So a, a yield grade being how much red meat, red muscle versus the amount of external fat be over here. So yield grade one, two, three, four, five, really fat, light muscle to be a five, really, you know, lean, no fat, be a one. Um, and then you've got all of your quality grades or how much marbling they have, standard, cutter, uh, choice, you know, all a select choice and prime all the way through here. So wherever that animal lines up between yield grade two choice plus is where it lands on that grid. And then down here is how much that premium gets paid out for wherever they land on that. So it, there's variables there. You know, we, we talked about how many come into the plan or how big they're processing, but at the same time that, that choice plus knowing that there's a lot of that feeding and you have to, there's a lot of things that you don't control what weather patterns, all of that during that feeding period anyway. But if you can control the genetics, the feed program, the setup program moving into it, you got a lot better shot at, at knowing where your margins are going to be at to know whether it's a good opportunity to retain ownership and try to get extra value out of your cattle or whether the guy walking up off the street may be paying you more than what you would make feeding those cattle out. He may not know that, but you do because you have that data. So that's what I would try to work through with people. So. Hmm. So you, you were already selling direct to consumers before you made this. Yeah, so a lot of it was just, you know, people knew me that, that you know, I, I jokingly, when, when Lauren and I got married, I told her, I said, I realized when we started selling meat that all my friends had cows. You know, so they, the, a lot of her friends were requesting, you know, hey, why didn't Ben get us a calf together? Most of mine already had cattle. 
<laughs> but but it was people that knew me you know would ask if I would I would keep them a calf and and, and start growing them there so it was a, a natural thing almost at the beginning that we just moved into uh just just by knowing people and then I've jokingly said as well but not really it's not really a joke is the fact that it's taken me more time to manage the process and plant and I've had less time to sell than prior to owning the process and plant so um, I'm still glad to do it for people, but we actually have lowered some of the numbers of selling and I'm hoping to get back, back, back some of those numbers here moving forward. So, so one that facility then helps other cattlemen in your area because it gives them that option that, as you said, if it wasn't an inspected facility there, then it would be perhaps not even possible for them to manage a local business. Yeah, every state's different. In Tennessee, you have two options. Um, federally inspected means you can sell by the cut. Uh, for us, means they have to be there uh, both at slaughter time and at or harvest time and at cutting time. Um, so they, they see the entire process to make sure there's not contamination from our, our harvest floor to our, our cut floor. Um, a state inspected animal is that you purchase a live animal from someone and then they can pay me. I still need to be a state inspected facility, but they can pay me to do the processing. You can, I mean, you can go as far as if someone purchases a live animal and you throw in the processing for free, you can process that animal on, on your property as far as full legalities here. Um, but personally, I think it's better to have one aged for a while in a cooler and to have somebody have a hanging cooler and those type of things can get, get pretty expensive. But, um, but those are the two options here is, is selling live through a state inspection, going back to families. Um, CSA sometimes get the, the way they do that is each person owns a share of an animal. So it might be 10 people on it. And, and then that's how they, they get around doing some of the federal inspected side of things to, uh, okay. to, to being able to use a custom processing plant, but that's how those work. But. So before uh, I think this is true and, and we do is, less than about 2% of our own animals. So sometimes people think, you know, they know I have cows too. They don't realize how many we do, but yeah, we're, we're less than 2% of our own. We're 98%, which means I have to do a good customer service business in order to be in business. So mm -hmm. you have another job, is that right? <laughs> uh, yep. I, I have until this year. Um, oh, okay. I, I'm actually, um, I've turned in my notice. So I, okay. I've got just a, a few days, a few weeks left. And um, so I, I've jokingly said one, some people will work one job for 30 years. I tried to work three for 10. And um, so, so now I'm, I'm backing off a little bit with the kids being, being the age that they are. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go to, uh, to the cow herd and having our, our plant uh, with, with COVID and the meat sales with what they've done for us this last year. Uh, it's been really well, uh, really, really, we've been blessed, but I, I, I assume it'll hold a few more years. I may have to, to go back to punching the clock somewhere else in a few years. Maybe not. We'll, we'll see how yeah. it goes. So I was going to say, what are you going to do with all your spare time when you, yep. <laughs> yep. So it's uh, we, we've got, I still have a few more dreams. That's what Lawrence said. My wife says, you know, you, you never run out of ideas. I said, you just run out of time. So yeah. it's. I've got some other things. If we can get some things going that I really would like to do for the, in, in the community, uh, if, yeah. if I could. So, 
So you were for a while part of what was it, Young Producers Group of NCBA? Could you tell us a little about NCBA, the Young Producers, what that sort of reality is like? Sure. So yeah, that was um, trying to think when that was. That was uh, about ten years ago is when they they started that. What they had what has now turned into YBL. If if anybody listening is is uh, still involved with with that Young Beef Leaders, uh, what YPC was or Young Producers Council um, was a way for young people. There was a president at the time named Andy Grossetta that was the one that kind of had started that idea. Um, to, to get involved through NCBA and through some of the state affiliate levels. So um, he had the idea, the vision to come to the National Cattlemen's uh, Trade Show and everybody in the family have something to do. And, and one of the things that we've continued to see uh, in agriculture, there's a lot of programs for people in high school. There's FFA, 4-H and those type. College, there's some. But the moment they leave college, because of the capital requirements for farms, et cetera, we lose a lot of contact with people in their 20s. And the, the goal of YPC was to try to give an organization for people that had interest, the people that had involvement, to still be able to make contacts with people higher up inside the organization, <clears throat> but also be able to um, grow their own network and, and across the country. So with that, uh, I started in being on the there's it was a way to learn how ncba works so they had what was called the tax and credit committee and then they had a ypc person that was part of the tax and credit committee for ncba and then they had the same thing for environmental stewardship have same thing for so all the different boards that they have ypc was a mirror image of that for the the young producers council so then the young producers council person would go to those meetings get back information and then if we wanted to would make a resolution to go back to um, back to those boards to be able to have a, a voting presence or a voice on on those boards. Um, with that, it was a, a great experience, not only from, from being involved with NCBA, but by being able to continue in that, uh, I ended up becoming the, the, the chair over about three or four years there as well. Uh, with that, was able to attend the Five Nations Beef Alliance, um, which was held in Canada the year I was able to do that. So that's through... Um, trying to get back to remember now, <clears throat> New Zealand, Australia, Canada, Mexico, and, and US. So it's representation from those five nations of, of trade agreements. So we were able to go and, and meet other people, uh, young people that was with that organization as well. So I still have contacts in Tasmania, New Zealand, Mexico, and things like that, that I was able to meet. Uh, and all of that started through <clears throat> through NCBA and, and, and through the YPC. So. I still, as well, um, we're not as active as we were, um, but through that was able to do some some classes at King Ranch um, down in Texas. We we had a two year leadership program that they put on through through King Ranch or in partnership with King Ranch, and then out of that organization and a few other contacts I made, we actually had a developed a mastermind group where we would get on calls from. Iowa, North Dakota, um, one guy's a PhD microbiologist for um, Darling, um, different people worked in processing plants, but we would kind of get together and, and it got very personal to the point of this is where we are in our family life, how's my career look, what do you guys think, and, and just uh, people that were thinkers but just wanted to help each other, um, and all of that, again, came from that that network of, of, of what was YPC at, at uh, 10 years ago, so...
Well, plus there's one additional thing that happened. Yep, yep. <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a great, great part of that is uh, exactly, that's where uh, I met my wife. Yep, she was the communications director when I was chair. So, uh, yep, at, uh, she was at Montana Stock Growers at the time. We dated on video for a year. Uh, that was that was pretty hard. I think we got got two trips and a few conferences in during that time, and then uh, she moved down, and we married a year later. So, congratulations! All, all of that through through NCBA and YPC. So, <laughs> so join YP. No, I'm kidding. That's um, right. <laughs> you too. In fact, uh, we became introduced because I had seen a video that had been posted by Montana stock growers that she was in telling her story along with uh, the images. And then the connection got made and we got introduced. So, um, <clears throat> so um, one of the advantages to being where you are is you're a lot closer to the market. Now, depending on how you're going to market your cattle, they yep. may end up going the other direction first, yep. and then they're out of your hands unless you're going to retain ownership all the way through that process. But in the in the in the direct to retail sale being as close to major population as you are can be a benefit, but it can also be a challenge for the beef industry. So you already talked about how the value of the land might put it outside of your ability to afford it, but part of that is driven by some other things. And, and so um, the the if you just would talk briefly about the challenge of other uses for land um, in your part of the world that is so well adapted to cattle production, as we've said already, but there are competing interests. And if you just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so even uh, when, you, when you went, uh, two things that have happened that, that's really constricted available land here. Um, when you had the ethanol subsidy come in, uh, we have marginal row crop ground at best in Middle Tennessee. You know, West mm. Tennessee, you get over to the, the floodplain there on the other side of the, the Tennessee River, you, you've got a lot better open ground for, for that loam type soil. We're clay-based over here. So there, there's not a high quality ground, creek bottoms and, and, and things. There's some, some spaces that you can do okay. But when, um, when that came about with the ethanol subsidy, there was a lot of crop cattle ground that got turned into crop ground and then stayed long enough to where the second or third year they were able to convince that owner, the landlord, to pull the fences out. And so when, when as soon as they get the fence out, there's not another option to, to compete with that ground. Uh, fencing cost has continued to inflate while cow prices have not. Um, so in this area too, it's a little bit different because of the rainfall that we get. Uh, you don't have the lifespan of a fence like you do out west. Um, you know, you're you're looking at 15, 20 years at best on on most fences. So you'll you'll fence a place two or three times in your life um, to, in order to to keep it up to to keep cattle in. Secondly, um, one of the things that depends whose numbers you look at they say anywhere between 80 and 92 people are moving into tennessee right now with uh, the political changes 
Uh, one of the things I like to look at for that is the U-Haul data. If you look at where most people are picking up U-Hauls and coming, Tennessee's number one. Uh, Texas is number two right now. So we've had a, a large influx. We've been insulated a lot of times uh, in, in the housing market, but coming straight down the 65 corridor, especially you have a lot of people moving in from other states, especially with the work from home or being that close to the Nashville airport that they can fly out. We have no sale or no state tax. So it, it's a good benefit for them to live here and work somewhere else um, as a way. That being said, land now is uh, my best math on cattle is about four to almost six times what its aesthetic value is. Just meaning that when somebody wants to come in and buy the farm, they can pay four to six times more than what that cow can pay for it and, and, and you operate. So the ones that are able to purchase that ground are either people with a strong W-2 job and, and, a, and a wage earner somewhere there or someone that has four or five places already paid for that they're using that cow and that income so that they can continue to expand. And, and a lot of those guys, uh, I, I know quite a few of them in the area and talking to them. You know, they'll, they'll tell you their, their places are just like their cows. He said, our, our, our land's made for trading. It, it's not family legacy land anymore. It's we're going to keep cows on it in order to keep it from growing up too bad. But it's intent to break it up here in the next 10 or 15 years. So when you have that type of mindset, you know, you can try to compete against it and say, oh, no, it's so sad. But in fact, is that's the reality of of where we're doing business at so the the benefit does come with having an increased market access to the end consumer so that was why i bought light hill and, or, or bought the plant and turned it into light hill and what we're trying to do is it's only a few miles off of the interstate i can pick up product i can be you know two three nashville suburbs within 40 minutes of where we're located at um, our farm is 20 minutes, a little bit farther out in the country. So I can take that, you know, and make that loop within an hour, uh, if I need to. So it, um, it's different. You know, a lot of times I, I say, I go to the concept of the, the optimist or pessimist is a glass half full or half empty. And it's the engineer that says it's twice as big as it should be to begin with. It's just is what it is. So that's kind of with, with my background and my family, that's how I look at things. You know, you can be be sad about the changes of it or nostalgic about the changes but either way you know they're, they're happening would it be easier for young producers to get into the business maybe it's still a lot of work you know and, and going back to uh when i do talk to, to clubs or groups of, of young people you know i i knew starting out from my background being in it that it would take 10 years before i would ever own what i was trying to do with the cattle you know, that I knew I would work. And that's a hard sale to convince people of young people. Most people don't understand that. But if you're interested in doing it, you're going to work 10 years for free. I had a set of cold cows back in 2014. Um, you know, I, I told you I'm kind of harder on them. They may be young, but they would have been a good set of cows for a young guy to, to start with. And I told him, I said, I'll send them to you and you, you keep them and you buy me out because the cow, cool value of those was about five or $600 and uh, cow value at the time was 1200. Said so you raise them for the next year and uh, you can buy me out over a year or two years for the value of the cows. And he said, so wait a minute, you mean it's gonna be two years before I can make money? I said, yeah. I said, but it's, you know, you, you, yeah, you're that far away from doing it, but I'm giving you cows, you know, for, for you to start with. And, and he had asked me two or three different times, had phone calls and I really did think he was interested. Uh, and when I proposed that to him, he just said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to work that long for nothing. Mm -hmm. And 
I understand that, but I also understand the margins that are in this business. And, and that's what you've got to decide is that you either have to create a lot bigger margin, which is branding, it's marketing, it's selling so that you have more room or you have to work a long time for free mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and that that's your options. And, and sometimes it's a combination of both. You, you, you've got to do both. So Somebody, um, the idea of, of a, a large part of the beef industry in the United States, certainly at the producer level, is lifestyle rather than business. Yep. And that can be a hindrance towards the improvement of the beef industry in the, in the U.S. Because the, those people who are treating it as a business can sometimes be competing against people who, you know, it's, it's like that's not, as you were saying, it's not their business. It's not what their livelihood depends on. So, and it's, it's gotten to, I mean, for a large part, again, part of my, my background is finance and, and, and I get to see a lot of people's books in, in doing what I've done. A lot of them, their operation is their way to get their W2 taxes back. That, that's really all they're trying to do. And, and if they don't have that W2 job, it doesn't make sense for them to continue to own the cattle. So as these guys would come in at 62, 63 years old, and we're talking about a, a short node or a tractor node, I was always trying to ask, you know, are you planning on retiring? What are you going to do? Because you see you're actually losing. <laughs> your depreciation is, is taking income for your cattle operation. So when you go to fixed income, do you really want to still have these around and what are you doing? And and most of them had never realized, and that, that was always a surprising thing to me, had never realized that they were actually losing money. They were only getting their own tax money back mm-hmm. um, by, by the structure of it. So it, it is, I mean, it, it, it's changing, not to say there's not ways to get in it. Um, there's there's a lot of ways. And, and that's the, the issue I guess I do take with some. I, I go, you know, I sit here and say that it's very hard to do. It is, but I did it on contract grazing. You know, I, I was able to get some lease ground. Another guy owned the cows um, and I took care of his cows for him. And then um, I've done it with the stocker cattle the same way. We do a, a split on profits of whatever the stocker cattle were. Um, there's a lot of stocker operators in this area that will pay, pay you per day and they'll do all the marketing. So there, there's ways to get in it with a lower capital requirement. Um, but you've got to get in the circle and get in the network to know and you, you've got to come with ground. That, that's that's what I always try to explain, you know, is that you, you've got to bring something to the table. They have money and cattle. They don't have the ground. So if you can find ground, they'll help you get in the business. So mm-hmm. Good. And so contacting people who are interested, obviously there's knowledge that they need to acquire, but the experience as well as, as you said, the connections and state and local cattlemen's organizations are a place to start with that. Um, national organizations, um, those sorts of things would be a obvious place for people to try to make begin making those connections. Um, yeah, and I always do like to tell people this, you know, I, I joke with the young guys, I spent a lot of time in sale barns growing up. It's a good place to make those connections. They're basically the social spot for a lot of the cattle. 
But a lot of the guys there, that's the only reason they are there. It's the social spot. They haven't made a business out of it. They're hanging out. They want to be connected to the industry, but they haven't. If you're going to look for a connection there, look for the guy that gets there right before sale time, during sale time, buys it and gets back out because he's the one that's actually working and got things to do. And don't just hang out with the ones that say, yeah, it's so hard for you. Find the one that's doing it and hook on to him and say, can I come ride with you for three or four days? And you can, you can generally learn a whole lot more. Excellent. Ben, thank you so much for sharing this time and and what you, your background and your experience and your knowledge. Um, been asking you a bunch of questions. It's only fair to give you the opportunity if you'd like to ask me a couple questions. Uh, I, I guess one of the, the things that interests me, I always like to, I say, pull the curtain back and see what the wizard's doing. So what... Uh, why this podcast and what's your desired hope for the effect of it? Oh, good. Um, so the reason for the sodcast is again, I, I'm, I've been given the opportunity to meet people who have expertise that goes from the production side all the way through the health of the consumers. And it, Obviously, that's a huge territory with a lot of individual silos of expertise. It's my perception that those silos end up being isolated from each other. And, and you don't have people who can build bridges between or, or there's a need for people that can build bridges between those. I see a lot of voices against animal agriculture, um, either the practice of animal food source food production or its consumption. And I think there needs to be people who can bring information into the public who that that contradicts those message those anti messages. Um, I I um, realistic enough to know that I'm not going to convince anybody who's firmly seated in an anti-group in, in once, but we haven't done a good job of getting the positive message across. And so that I, I hope that at least people will hear information that they can say, huh, I didn't know that. And then you should pardon the expression, ruminate on that for a while. Um, in addition, I think that I've met people on the human health side that have information that would benefit the producer community that I know. Um, and, and I know that that's also a part of your personal story. Um, so when we have, you know, I go to these meetings and I look at the audience and go, Maybe there's people here that need to hear about metabolic health and how that might be restored. And judging by what you service at the meals, yeah, probably we need to talk about that a little bit. Um, and then globally, I see the need that humanity needs more animal source food in their diet globally. That doesn't mean it all gets produced in Tennessee and shipped over somewhere else, it means how can we help people in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, to produce more in a way that 
protects, maybe even enhances their environment that's appropriate to their culture, that gives them the economic opportunity that comes with livestock agriculture. Um, so I, I want to build bridges, I want to convey information, and I want to encourage people to look more into it because I think it's the 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 good news that that I see is that ruminant animal agriculture is going to be critical toward meeting the goals of 2050 and beyond. So that's maybe a start on an answer. What's the biggest roadblocks you've run into so far? Um well I sometimes am surprised by the pushback I get from agricultural audiences. Um, sometimes it's because I don't insist that people have to eat grass-fed or organic or whatever. And uh, I'm telling people, go to the supermarket and buy what you can afford yeah. and, you know, what's appropriate. And, uh, and so people who are really vested in those particular market claims aren't very happy with me from time to time, but I can sleep at night. So I guess it's a good deal. Um, but at the same time, then um, I've, I know a lot of really smart people. Now why they have anything to do with me, I don't know, but they, they are still, the, the conventional wisdom that that cuts across all these disciplines. And so I can, I have, I've, I've sat and listened to people who will talk about how they instituted an intervention with a community in parts of Africa, where what they did was they made sure a pregnant woman got one egg a day in addition to whatever the rest of her diet was. And then while she was breastfeeding her child, they continued that one egg a day. And then some years later, and I think it was nine, I could be off a little bit, but they can measure cognitive and scholastic differences in her child versus children from that same community didn't get one egg a day. So they... Clearly established, there's such a thing as too little animal source food in a human's diet. Yeah, clear. It's there, and they've done. This has been their livelihood. I mean, they they know this, but not too much. They'll say five minutes later. So there's this mythology. Okay, there's a belief in such a thing as too much animal source food in a human's diet, and I keep going show me where that is in the data, in the, in the high quality scientific data, show me the evidence for that. And currently I'm comfortable in saying there is none. So how do we get that bridge made? And, and then on top of that, you have people who they're sincerely wrong. Um, you know, they, they, they believe what they're saying and they, you know, they, they were taught this or, you know, somebody that they respected told them something and they believe it and they've told it to people, which then makes it even more likely that you'll hold on to it. Right. Um, and yet 
if you can have a relationship that allows you to have a conversation, respectful conversation, say, okay, you say this, yet here's some information. And maybe we can get further down the track. I will say that I know people who are engaged in the public conversation that know that what they're saying is not right. And yet they continue to say, and that puts them into a whole nother category as far as I'm concerned, you know, because yeah. we can all be wrong. And, and the, the, the thing that I picked up somewhere along the line is uh, if an honest man is shown to be an error, he either ceases to be an error or he ceases to be honest. Yep. So figuring out how to be an effective communicator, it's, you know, probably mostly on my side. Um, so as far as obstacles that <laughs> I maybe need to put my hand up. Well, and that's for me, honestly, there's no difference in uh, dealing with my customers now uh, because, as, you know, as I jokingly said, all my friends had cattle. So everything to me that seems like a common thought now when I've started literally doing pop-ups or just sales into an area of people that have moved in and don't even know the Middle Tennessee story of, of what I've been about. And then now to try to explain, you know, why I do some grass-fed and why I do some fed, you know, which one, because I have a product for you, you know, and, 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 you know, it, it's which one you believe need, needs to be. Um, I have, you know, the, the positives and negatives to both, both sides and, and trying to explain those options for people. And, and like you said, trying to communicate that and then still have, you know, the, the social media warriors there, I call them the keyboard karate people, you know, they're going to come in out of nowhere and, you know, just change. You have a meat plant. You, you are the worst debased human being on the face, you know, and, and still try to have a, have an articulate, some type of respectful conversation sometimes when it's hard to have. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, that's, that's why I asked what it was, was with that. I know you're dealing with an eclectic group of people. And, uh, and, and, and trying to bridge that. And I feel like, you know, even as a, as a private business, I'm trying to do the same thing, uh, in, in the story and even in, in the branding that we do, uh, is that it, I, I want it to be honest. I want it to be open door. I, I, I want those things to, to happen. Uh, but then the old, old saying still is, you know, everybody wants the sausage, but they don't want to see how it's made. And that's literally what I do, you know, yeah, so you just yeah. got both of those things. But, but on the other, too. yeah, I, I absolutely could see that. Um, it's not life. Biology is not fair. Yeah, it is. It is what it is. And, and we have a growing number of people who can tell amazing stories about how Somebody who has been on insulin for years as a type 2 diabetic, when they shift to a diet that's much higher in animal source food, restricted in these processed carbohydrates, they're off medications. They lose this excess body fat. They, they are, by objective measures, healthy. Okay. Now let's have a conversation because 
you've just liberated this person through all the work that you're doing that we don't have to because we can go to you, right? That I mean, that's the, the, the societal bargain we're now making um, because I don't have to produce all the food that I consume 24 hours a day or however, you know, every day. My daily food is not dependent on my daily effort directly. I'm going to do something. I'm going to be paid for it. I then turn around and in exchange to you, I get food. And in this, in this society, it's remarkably little out of what I make (laughs) um, compared to other, you know, where it can be half or more of what somebody makes they have to spend for food, but it's more than food. It is this, liberation and and health improvement and part of what i've been thinking about how to voice to various segments of the beef industry and and i've said it and i twitch whenever i hear somebody say it there is no the beef industry there's the bit that you do the the various bits that you do in Tennessee versus the various bits that somebody would do in Texas versus Kansas versus California, it's all different. At the same time, marketing in beef has said we're lean, you know, we're lean protein and, and talk about themselves as part of the protein industry. And then I hear this morning's conversation. It's like, well, you're marketing a heck of a lot more than protein. And, and if you just talk about protein alone, you let somebody talk about vegetal protein as if it's equivalent to animal source protein. It isn't, never has been, never will be. Um, And at the same time, if we could help more of, what, there's 2% of of producers, 98% of consumers in the United States, something along that line. If you could help your consumers restore their health, you've just made one heck of a customer, right? And and so helping people understand, especially those people who directly interface with the public, the, the, the consumers, we're all, cons- I think Amanda Radke is where I got the quote, but we're all concerned about the same thing. We just understand it differently because of our experience and our perspective. And maybe if we could speak to one another and listen, we could understand that we're really concerned about exactly the same thing. And we then maybe can get past the us and them and get past the diet wars and whatever else that's going on. There's just too much of that and I'm getting very tired of it. So that hopefully is also why I'm engaged in this activity. Okay. Good questions. Thank you, sir, for your time. I look forward to getting to visit your part of the country. Um, in that great good day somewhere down the road, uh, made my first trip the beginning of the year and felt good to make a trip again. Um, yeah, get out. So, um, continued success and progress and, and blessings to you and your family. And thanks again for your time.
Thank you. Thank you for having me.